Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. We are uh, Bill Newman-less today. Bill is off. Um, we, uh, I'd like to start with a little bit of a fish wrap. Uh, as folks probably know, Texas Governor Greg Abbott ordered uh, that a string of buoys be uh, created for about 1,000 yards or so along in the middle of the Rio Grande in order to ostensibly prevent migrants from crossing. Uh, there was that string of buoys. There's also barbed wire fencing. According to reports and according to witnesses, troopers were ordered to openly push migrants back into the river, which included their children. Uh, they refused them water and otherwise threatened their physical well-being. Um, the Justice Department on Monday filed a lawsuit against Texas and its Republican governor for placing those buoys in the Rio Grande as part of the state's effort to deter migrants from crossing into the United States. That civil suit said that Governor Abbott violated federal law by installing that barrier, and he asked the judge to order the defendants to, quote, promptly remove the unauthorized obstruction at their own expense, citing the uh, 1899 Rivers and Harbors Appropriation Act. The Rio Grande at that location... um, the border is about 1,200 miles long. This is about 1,000 yards of these buoys. Um, the Rio Grande is an international barrier between Mexico and the United States, and international law, and indeed, the treaties passed by the Senate by two-thirds majority, which means U.S. law, forbids uh, any individual from uh, impeding, uh, uh, I guess, in, impeding movement on an international border and Mexico has uh, indicated that it's going to look at the international court and file a complaint against the state of Texas and its governor, Abbott. Um, it is a really important and inhumane um, act to, uh, to do what Abbott has ordered. Uh, the migrant problem is a problem. We do have to, Congress should be, instead of doing the nonsense that it does, attending uh, to it and finding solutions for border control and uh, immigration status, uh, which it's not doing. All of which is very relevant to uh, cool films by Larry Hott, our Emmy Award-winning Florentine uh, citizen, Northampton resident, who blesses us with his commentary and introduces us to all kinds of important films. And relevant to the Rio Grande uh, problem, uh, we have uh, a guest that Larry's going to introduce us to that has uh, just done an incredible film involving the Rio Grande. Larry, what do you have for us today? Yeah, isn't it amazing that we could be so topical, so on it, that we have in the studio with us this morning a From filmmaker. From the front page to Larry Hutt. <laughs> and our filmmaker, Mary Paterno. Did I get it right? correct, Mary? Yeah, it was good. Okay. Um, and before we introduce her and have her speak to us about the film, which is called Requiem for a River. We're just going to hear a clip right from the beginning of the film. Go ahead, Dan. In this landscape that we're on, people have been walking forever, using this landscape forever, okay? So welcome. Our communities have always used this river system, the Rio Grande. You go up there, and then you have this terrace here. And so this trail that we just walked on 
could have actually been an old irrigation line where the water was channeled down through these lower areas. And so they manipulated the water, so it just channeled and it meandered all the way down to this plain here. You see that? That would have been a huge planting bed here. Our ancestors were groundwater specialists. heard the opening of the film and he says we manipulated the water so I think this film actually is about manipulating water tell us about the film tell us who we just heard uh, what the film is about and why you were compelled to make it well we just heard Louis Henna who's a member of the Tesuque Pueblo the Pueblo Indians have lived along the Rio Grande um, right on and near the Rio Grande for a, over a century, probably 1,500 years. They're one of the few, the only tribe of Native Americans that exist and live in the in their ancestral homeland. Every other Native American um, tribes have been removed um, from their homeland. So the Pueblo Indians are really um, interesting, um, you know, survivors and. Uh, like I said, the history of the Rio Grande, you can't tell the history of the Rio Grande without speaking of the Pueblo. Um, I got interested in the Rio Grande. I had a girlfriend who lived in Albuquerque, so I was in New Mexico a lot. Um, the Rio Grande runs right through the city. And um, I just fell in love with the river. And uh, at one point, I guess it was in 2018, I read an article in the New York Times that was called The Rio Grande is Dying, Does Anyone Care? And that got me really interested in, in exploring the, um, the region more. And so I started... Mary Paterno cared. I did. I did care a lot. And it's just such an interesting river, iconic American river with so much history. Um, you know, it's, it, it spans every kind of geological um, type. You know, it runs through uh, canyons and wetlands, and um, it's the border, as Buzz said, between um, the U.S. and Mexico. Well, let's go it's back so to that border, that border question. Yes. Uh, it's also called the Rio Bravo. Yes. Uh, Rio Grande, Rio Bravo. Uh, on the Mexican side, it's referred to as the Rio Bravo. Right. But in your film, uh, it all takes place in the U.S. That's right. Um, so what was, that, what was that decision like? You, you've done one side of the border. Mm -hmm. You've got a lot of, of the ecological issues and cultural issues, but only from the American side. Uh, wh wh how, did, how did that decision come about? Well, initially I wanted to do um, the, the film about the entire span of the river, so starting in Colorado, um, where the headwaters are, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico and Brownsville, where it, where it, it hits the Gulf. Um, and I had intended to do um, some of the story on the Mexican side. What I realized pretty rapidly was that the film was too sprawling and just too big. And um, I got a lot of feedback that the, the Texas side of the story, which is primarily what people think of as only a border and immigration story, um, there's a lot of people who have done films about that. So... I, when I was thinking about how to pare it down, 
initially I thought, well, I'll do a two-part series and start with New Mexico. And in the end, I mean, the film really centers only on New Mexico um, because I felt like it's it's a part of the river that's been really neglected in terms of the media, but also because, you know, it has such a rich history. Um, and also the way the water has been dealt with in New Mexico, I think has the potential to be a framework, a blueprint for how we deal with uh, water insecurity and the climate crisis in the future. And that's a great introduction to the next clip I want to play. I first want to say that I've seen this film and I think it's brilliant and beautiful. It does come together and I think it made a wise decision to keep it in one place. One of the issues of making a river film is a river is not something that we can identify with. You identify with people. Mm -hmm. And so your film is about characters. Yes. And one of the characters uh, is uh, the second clip, uh, the woman. Uh, so you can introduce her, and then we can hear the clip. Okay. The, her name is Dagmar Llewellyn. She works for the Bureau of Reclamation. She's their climate specialist. Um, she, I, I, when I talk about the film and how I got to meet all the different characters. So I, I always say, all roads lead to Dagmar. Dagmar put me in touch with so many of the of the characters um, that are in the film, and she's just such a, a beautiful, wonderful, interesting, smart person. Well, let's hear from Dagmar. I never knew how much beauty water adds to a river. <laughs> Absolutely, the Rio Grande is endangered. Absolutely. The projections over the coming century, if we don't do anything about our greenhouse gas emissions, are for the, the evaporation rates to go so high that we could lose about a third of the water that we get from our rain, even without a change in the rain. The biggest thing that is likely to affect our future water supply is temperature itself. And in our projections of future water supply and demand, that's the most robust signal. Temperature is going up. And so if you think about why your dryer works or why your hair dryer works, it's because as you increase temperature, the, the air can hold more moisture. And that relationship is exponential. And so as that uh, temperature goes up, the, the draw, the thirst of the atmosphere to draw water out of its liquid state and, it, and its solid state as snow and ice, uh, increases exponentially. And so that means... So what Dagmar is talking about there is climate change and its effect on the river. Uh, the river was in trouble before we were all aware of climate change because of how overused it is. That's right. Um, so I just want to make sure our audience knows that we're talking to Mary Paterno, the producer of a new film called Requiem for a River. Mm -hmm. So the, one of the more striking images in this film is of the Elephant Butte Reservoir in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what that image is, the first image one sees and the graphic you have on the screen? Well, when I was shooting in 2019, um, I mean, the drought in um, New Mexico and in the West has been going on for decades. It's literally the Elephant Butte Reservoir hasn't been full since 20, I'm sorry, 2003. Um, so there's been a, a very long 20-year drought that's afflicted all of the Southwest. Um, the, the, the image that you speak of that, that um, pretty much starts the film after the title sequence in Louis Henna is um, shot, shots uh, from a drone of the reservoir at 4% capacity. Um, so it's, 
you know, I mean, there's been a water crisis building in the Southwest, in New Mexico and Arizona, California, et cetera, Nevada. And um, Elephant Butte is just one example of that. There's a line in the film that says the system is going to fail. The least catastrophic way is the goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you start talking about these concepts of community versus commodity and the asequia or sequia waters. Could you explain what that is? It's a major part of the film. Yeah, Asequias, this is one of the reasons why I really wanted to focus on New Mexico, because they have a system of water sharing that's actually built into the New Mexico governing governance, and that is this ancient um, system of water sharing called Asequias. Um, they were brought, the, the, the technology uh, was brought to Spain when the Moors um, invaded um, the Iberian Peninsula in the 8th century, and then the Spanish brought that um, those systems to Mexico and then to New Mexico. Um, a lot of the acequias have since been discarded or, or dried up, but in New Mexico, it's a system that's always been revered, that's, um, that's been kept in place. There's dozens of uh, acequias throughout the state. What are they exactly? They're basically um, community um, systems of water sharing. So the water is diverted from a main water source in, in the case of my film, the Rio Grande, and then it's funneled through hydrology. There's no um, electrical or moving parts. That, and then s the water is basically sent through to... Um, small farms throughout the state, and they're community-run. So you have a person who's elected to be the Meyer Duomo, Duomo, and he is, or she, is the one that like uh, allocates um, when the water gets turned on, how much the, uh, each plot gets. They organize the cleanup of the acequias in the spring. It's a very much of a communal uh, system of water sharing. And I think that what I'm trying to say in my film ultimately is these ancient forms of water sharing can be a blueprint for how we address water shortages in the future. We've been speaking with Mary Paterno uh, about her new film, Requiem for a River, and we'll be right back after these messages. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River 
River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well with unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside. Get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we're back with Larry Hott and his guest, Mary Paterno, talking about Mary's film, Requiem for a River. Um, I think that we should note, Larry, that you have done a lot of work on the Colorado River, uh, and recently you took your uh, rafting trip uh, down the Colorado River, but um, Mary's story about the degradation, the suffering, the climate, and overuse problems are not unique to just the Rio Grande. No, they're unique to just about every American river. Right here, the Connecticut River has multiple dams up and down it. We have a pump storage station that creates a 20-mile-wide bathtub uh, with a bathtub ring. And killing all marine kill, life. Kill all the fish. That's very controversial. In fact, my first film was about that. Uh, I did a film on the Cuyahoga River. I'm very familiar with these river stories. Um, one of the things about a lot of American rivers is that they are manipulated. Mm. Uh, and it is a question of uh, how do you keep the blood, which is a life of the area, running. And this metaphor of a river uh, uh, for life is a frequent one you hear. And I want to get to another Another clip. Um, it's the clip with John Clayshult, the pecan farmer, who has another way of looking at things. So maybe you could set this up. Who is this guy, and what's the clip we're going to hear? So Glenn, John Clayshult is a uh, pecan farmer. Uh, as you said, he owns hundreds of acres of land south of Las Cruces, New Mexico, which is the south of the state. It used to be known for its uh, green chili um green chilies, and, and now everyone's converting the green chili um, fields to pecans because pecans make a lot more money. Um, John, I'm, I'll, I'll, I don't want to take up too much time, but he's somebody who I really like. Everyone who watches the film sees him as a villain, which I feel very bad about because he does uh, have a, a different perspective on the river in terms of ownership, but in reality, he is playing by the rules. I mean, it's the rules that have been established for how the w river is divvied up, 
And um, he, he, this is a man who's covered in dirt all the time. Right. He's a very hard worker. Well, you're mentioning the, the water compact, which goes back more than 100 years and gives riparian rights to the first use. Um, let's hear the clip from John Clayshall, the pecan farmer. Something that are very precious all over the West. There's an old saying, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. And that's pretty much accurate around here. People look at how much water trees use, and they use a lot, and they and they criticize that use. And, and I do remind them that we're the biggest owners of this water. We have water rights that are established by law. Do we like seeing the river dry? Not really. We like seeing it wet because we need the water too. If you want water rights, do the same thing I did. Buy them. Therefore, you can buy land, buy water rights, and you can do anything. That's your water. You can do anything you want with it. You can put it in a river if you want it. You can do anything you want with it. It's your water then. I bought this and it's my water now. Larry, I think it, it is so wonderful that this Requiem for a River is a really powerful film. I wish listeners could see the images. They are really beautiful. Yeah, one of the images that really struck me, I want to come back to the Pecan Farm, but it's related, is the, um, the ceremony of San Ysidro, mm -hmm. I think. This is where the... You, you show these uh, families uh, waiting for the water to come down the river. Mm -hmm. There's an empty water riverbed, and all of a sudden the dam opens and the river is released, and people have tubes, and they're tubing in the river. It's totally controlled. And there's some aerial shots you show of the concrete uh, causeways of the river. You know, it's as, as, as if the river is really completely enclosed in some unnatural material. And the pecan farmer, he says, really without any irony, well, just buy it if you want it. Assuming that people would have the money that he has, there's a white farmer, and it brings up the question do you bring in the film of environmental justice versus environmental racism. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about how that comes out in the film? Well, I think in the film it comes out in a, um, a bunch of different ways. There's a, one of the first stories is about um, the Cochiti Pueblo who have lived along the river since um, literally 800 um, you know, over over a thousand years, and the and the Bureau of Reclamation at the time, in the uh, probably since the '60s, were looking to build a dam to protect Albuquerque. And there's an Air Force base south of uh, Albuquerque called Kirkland Air Force Base, and so they were looking for a place to build a dam, and it's basically for flood protection. And um, in the process of building that dam. They flooded out the um, is the tribes. The is this the Cochiti Dam? The Cochiti Dam. It's five miles wide. Yes, it's the biggest earthen dam in the world, and they and they the they basically flooded out the the ancestral farmlands of the of the tribe, and in the process, um, really hampered them being able to use their language because so much of their language was used around agricultural ceremonies, around planting, around harvesting. And so the damage that was done to the Cochiti um, by building that dam was immeasurable. Uh, another story that's told um, in terms of environmental justice is the, is the community of Mountain View, which is just south of Ab Albuquerque, where basically it's, it's, a, it's an old story that's been done throughout the country, but you put all your industrial horrible um, waste sites in the poor neighborhoods. And Mountain View was a poor Hispanic neighborhood in Albuquerque. And, um, and, and so, yeah. 
So we're going to wrap up in a second, but yep. uh, I just want to congratulate you on this film. You were the cinematographer, uh, producer, <laughs> director, editor, lots of other people involved, of course, but you did a magnificent job on this beautiful film. Where can people see it? You know what? It just finished in June, so I'm just getting it out there now. So I've applied to uh, three different festivals. I'm going to keep applying, but you sort of want to uh, be strategic about how you roll it out. So right now, um, it's it's hard to see, but hopefully starting in the fall, it'll get really get out there and get some traction. So I should mention that uh, Mary Paterno lives here in the Valley. She's one of our local filmmakers. Excuse me, she lives here in the Hilltowns. And the Hilltowns, which is part of the valley, uh, where the water comes down from the mountains down to the Connecticut River. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being on the show. Congratulations on a beautiful film, which is called Requiem for a River. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Larry Hott, for bringing Mary Paterno to our attention. I'm going to be looking out for that film. Sounds really powerful. We are going to be back. We're going to be talking about artificial intelligence AI with the chair of the computer science department at the University of Massachusetts. Are these wonderful prospects or horrific prospects? We'll talk about that right after this. Deception destroys me. The Bill of Rights froze me. Jails, they all know me. Frustrated our churchmen. The saving of soul men. The tinker, the tailor, the colonial governor. They pull You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Members of the major unions for educators in the Hampshire Regional and Williamsburg School Districts have voted to declare no confidence in Superintendent Diana Bonville. The Williamsburg Teachers Association, representing the teachers and educational support personnel at the Anti-Dumphy School, also voted no confidence in Superintendent Bonville on June 30th. The union stated many reasons caused this vote, including failing to provide transparency, inadequate communication, forcing out veteran staff, and continuing to pursue a central office candidate whose values were not aligned with theirs. The decision will be discussed at a school committee meeting tomorrow night. A sexual abuse claim made against an athletics department member at Deerfield Academy is now settled. The victim alleged longtime Deerfield Academy athletics department employee Norman Therion sexually abused him in the athletic stock room when he was eight or nine years old in 1991 or 1992. The victim was never a Deerfield Academy student, but he was the child of a school employee and was living on campus at the time. Jessica Day, Deerfield Academy spokesperson, tells the Gazette the school's trustees and victim's lawyer reached the settlement on the allegations which came after the school engaged former Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, John M. Greeney, to lead an independent investigation of the three-decade-old alleged incident. Senator Joe Comerford shared Tuesday afternoon that MassDOT will be closing a section of Route 2 eastbound from just west of the Gill Montague Bridge to Adams Road due to slope erosion from Friday's storm. Partly to mostly sunny today, a high of 86 to 90. Evening temperatures, 70s and 80s under variable clouds. An overnight low tonight of 66 to 72. Heat advisory in effect for Thursday and Friday. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Afternoon storms, a high of 88 to 92. And back in the 90s on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
la Corte Suprema de Estados Unidos tendría que cumplir con estándares de ética más estrictos según la legislación aprobada el jueves por el Comité Judicial del Senado. En respuesta a las recientes revelaciones sobre viajes de jueces financiados por donantes, el proyecto de ley enfrentó la oposición unida de los republicanos, quienes dijeron que podría destruir la Corte. El panel votó según las líneas partidarias para establecer reglas de ética para la Corte y un proceso para hacerlas cumplir, incluidos nuevos estándares de transparencia en torno a recusaciones, obsequios y posibles conflictos de intereses. Los demócratas impulsaron la legislación por primera vez después de los informes a principios de este año de que el juez Clarence Thomas participó en vacaciones de lujo y en un acuerdo inmobiliario con un importante donante republicano, y después de que el presidente del Tribunal Supremo John Roberts se negara a testificar ante el Comité sobre la Ética de la Corte. Desde entonces, los informes noticiosos también revelaron que el juez Samuel Alito se había tomado unas vacaciones de lujo con un donante republicano, y la prensa asociada informó la semana pasada que la jueza Sonia Sotomayor, con la ayuda de su personal, ha adelantado las ventas de sus libros a través de visitas a universidades durante la última década. El presidente del Comité Judicial del Senado, Dick Durbin, dijo que la legislación sería un primer paso crucial para restaurar la confianza en la Corte. Dijo que si alguno de los senadores sentados en la sala se hubiera involucrado en actividades similares, estaría violando las reglas de ética. La legislación de ética tiene pocas posibilidades de ser aprobada en el Senado o en la Cámara de Representantes controlada por los republicanos, pero los demócratas dicen que la avalancha de revelaciones significa que son necesarios estándares exigibles en la Corte. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. You know, um, right now there's a huge splash in terms of box office receipts and otherwise in terms of reviews being made by the film about the physicist uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, um, who was appointed by the Pentagon during World War II to work on a top secret, what was called the Manhattan Project Oppenheimer and his team of scientists spent years developing and designing what we came to know as the atomic bomb, and they finished their work. Well, uh, I have an anniversary of sorts we just passed uh, on July 16th of 1945, and then, of course, on August 6th, uh, Hiroshima uh, suffered the effects of having the bomb dropped on them, Nagasaki, Nagasaki shortly thereafter. I am mentioning that film and the message because I think that the message of the film by most reviewers is that um, human, the expansion of human knowledge and understanding and technological, uh, the wonders of our technological advances, as we all know, are a double-edged sword. And sometimes be careful what you wish for. Uh, Oppenheimer was aware th of the potential uses and consequences of the devastating instrument he helped design and manufacture. Um, and yet uh, he felt that the science involved it was warranted human advancement of science. We are, I think, now this is just me. I'm in my 70s. Uh, I understand that a computer has roughly 700,000 potential functions. I'm good at about 20 of them. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of them, I don't have a clue. 
So as somebody who is a bit of a Luddite, um, to me, the entire prospect of artificial intelligence is as wondrous as it is frightening. And for that reason, we have invited and we're blessed to have the chair of the University of Massachusetts um, consumer, con computer science faculty, Eric Learned Miller, uh, join us today to talk about artificial intelligence, what we all refer to as AI. Good morning. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us, Eric. I think let's start with this. First, what do you do? Who are you and what do you do? <clears throat> Sure. Well, uh, before I was chair, I, I did uh, I taught computer science. I taught about uh, neural networks, which is one of the technologies behind uh, artificial intelligence. And I do computer vision, which is part of intelligence that deals with understanding what's in images, what's what's in videos, anything from face recognition to uh, watching the road for autonomous driving. And technologies like that is focused around images. Of course, there are also people who work with language, text, robotics, and so forth. So these are the different sub areas of artificial intelligence. And I also uh, do some work in what's called machine learning, which studies how we can teach computers um, the way that, uh, you know, in, in styles similar to the way we teach human beings by teaching them by example. Um, and I'll probably bring this up later, but in my previous life, I, I spent about seven years in the medical device industry developing software for, for surgeons. And I think that's relevant to this conversation because I learned a lot about regulation through the Food and Drug Administration in that, and that's influenced a lot my views on how we should deal with AI, but I'll, I'll leave that for later. Wow. Well, let's go there. What is AI? Well, uh, you know, the way I think about it, and, and there are many different definitions, but uh, it's basically trying to get computers to do skills that are more traditionally uh, thought of as, as human skills, uh, like recognizing a face or uh, having a robot walk through the forest without tripping, um, understanding language, understanding, uh, interpreting text and understanding the meaning behind text, any task that has sort of traditionally been thought of as a human task, unlike, say, calculating, uh, you know, the sine of an angle, which we think of as a, as a more traditional function of a computer. So, of course, it's always a moving target because the more problems that AI solves, the more people get used to computers solving those problems, and they sort of slip out of what people think of as AI. But, you know, uh, so, so it's a little bit of a slippery uh, moving target, but that's how I would describe it. That is, uh, that's just chock full of images for me and conceptually almost incomprehensible for me because we're talking about machines thinking, that is generating yeah. creativity. Uh, I'm thinking Terminator. <laughs> Should I be thinking Terminator? <laughs> well, you know, intelligence is, um, you know, creating what we think of as human intelligence has so many dimensions. And for many years, we've been working on what I would call the substrate of intelligence. For example, it's very hard to be intelligent if you can't interpret the sensory data coming in. 
So, you know, we have eyeballs, but they're not just detecting light. We're interpreting the light that comes in through our eyes with our brains to do things like tell the difference between an apple and an orange or to avoid a root as we're walking through the forest. And it, we don't typically as humans associate those skills with intelligence, but what you learn as you start to try to create intelligent agents is that if you don't have those basic skills to build on, it's incredibly difficult to build intelligent agents. So many of us, like those working in computer vision or, um, or robotics and so forth, have been doing for 50 years is to try to build up those basic skills. And um, other people have been working on very abstract things that are more traditionally associated with intelligence, like playing chess. But I think as we move forward in AI, we learn that lots of the things that humans take for granted are actually the things that help us more to be intelligent in the world we live in, like seeing and interpreting what we're seeing, understanding the intent of somebody by looking at their face and and things like that that you know are not raised on a pedestal the way Shakespeare and 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 chess are and things like that but are actually more fundamental to our intelligence the things that we all have and we can all do well uh, professor learned miller that it's so interesting and and even the language to ask my question is somewhat elusive to me but there are certain functions when we when we talk about a uh well for example right now the writers guild is on strike the hollywood and one of the three major issues we had a a striking screenwriter on the show last week and uh, he explained that one of the huge issues is the use of ai artificial intelligence to actually write this the screenplays and write the scripts which now humans do that you can just plug in some of the themes and then it actually creates a story and writes something that traditionally was human creativity that actually foresaw the story that's going to be used in a in either a, a movie or uh, in a series, television series. Um, I see that as very different than... Um, than playing chess. Playing chess, you put in, you know, you input all the possible moves and what the trajectory yeah. should be, and there it goes. And I can, I right. can see that. But it's scary to me that creating, visioning a movie script uh, can be done by a non-human. Should I be worried about that? Well, <laughs> that's... Um, I, I think it's really taken many of us uh, um, by surprise what, what a huge leap forward there was. I mean, now I think it's good for people to understand that, you know, for the last 50 years, people have been writing computer programs that could generate text. And um, it's been getting better and better and better. Um, but in the last year, in the last three years or so, um, there there have been enormous leaps forward. Um, I mean, to answer whether we should be worried about that is, I, I think, um, is a complicated question about well, whenever there's a new technology, there, there are always displacements, right? I mean, uh, you know, from the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, machines put all kinds of people out of work, and they also created new opportunities. So I, I and, and of course, happen. Dr. Oppenheimer. 
Which well, that, that that's another dimension is the risks. But in terms of just putting people out of work, which is a huge issue, um, I mean, I think the hope for a new technology is always that it's going to make, in the long run, make everybody's life easier. Of course, you don't want to just concentrate wealth. You don't want one person who owns ChatGPT to just, you know, take over all movie writing and and get all the wealth while everybody else is out of a job. I mean, there's always the issues of redistributing wealth, finding new jobs, you know, creating new opportunities with the new technology. And, you know, that's always been a slow and difficult process, I think, with any new technology. So I am very sympathetic to the writers in the Writers Guild. I think it's very scary. I mean, I'll tell you, when I first was playing around with ChatGPT, one of the first things I did was try to figure out whether it was good at doing mathematical proofs because I have a proof I've been working on for about 10 years and I, I was terrified that I was gonna be burned like uh, like the professor in Goodwill Hunting when when the, the teenager comes along and solves the proof that he's been working on for 10 years and he's just completely devastated. And I, I was almost relieved to find out that it's pretty bad at proofs. So, um, you know, I, I think we're all asking ourselves, are we going to become obsolete? Um, yeah, it's I, I don't have any great answers to that, except to say that I, I hope in the long run we can make people's lives better and, and redistribute tasks and redistribute wealth and and find purposes uh, for all of us, you know. This is Dan. Um, my question actually is to look at the positive since you have worked in the medical industry. Uh, yeah. Talk about what potential there exists for AI to detect um, diseases and to yeah, find solutions sure. to a lot of these uh, pending issues, especially as our population ages and uh, we begin to deal with a lot of these issues. Yeah, well, I, I've uh, published several papers in this um I, I don't want to tout them too much because they're really um, just sort of um, almost idea papers. But one one because I worked in face recognition, there is a rare condition called acromegaly, which starts to slowly um, affect the condition of your face. Uh, Andre the Giant, the pro wrestler, uh, had acromegaly, and several other famous people have had it. Um, and uh, but it's not detected very well because the, it progresses so slowly. So we wrote a computer program uh, that would try to screen for the disease. And if the screening score came out high enough, then you would be uh, referred to a specialist physician who could do other tests and confirm the disease. That was one. We've also just, we're just publishing now uh, a paper based on uh, neural networks that looks at uh, cardiac magnetic resonance imaging and uh, screens you for a condition known as mitral regurgitation, which is a problem of the valves in your heart where the blood goes backwards in your heart. So um, this is a huge area now. It's developing very rapidly. It's gonna take quite a while for it to be become mature enough um, and for the, it to, to be adopted by the medical community, but it's already starting to have an impact. 
for example, in radiology is is one of the big areas, um, and and many other areas. So I I do think that's uh, it's a, a, that has great positive potential. It, and is that would you define that as artificial intelligence? Absolutely. I, I um. You know, it's um, first of all, it involves uh, much of it involves visual analysis, like looking at an X-ray and trying to decide if there's a hairline fracture there. Um, that that's traditionally a very uh, human um, uh, human activity done by radiologists, um, but also, um, you know, the ability of artificial intelligence to uh, to detect sort of um, weak correlations among ma in massive amounts of data, you know, you know, maybe I have two rare conditions 20 years apart and by sort of analyzing the data all over the web, um, artificial intelligence methods can start to understand these things are actually correlated. They're, they're, you know, of course, a scientist could also do that theoretically if they had access to enough data and if they could analyze it, um, for long enough, but these met new methods are particularly good at drawing connections between uh, things that are correlated in a very weak way that might escape human attention. Well, so a lot of potential there. Yeah, we are speaking with Professor Eric Learned Miller. He is the chair of the computer science faculty at our university of Massachusetts. There is nothing artificial about his intelligence, but we are really glad to have a true expert. We talk about AI all the time. We talk about our fears and, and the benefits of AI. It's really great to have somebody who knows what he's talking about with us. And we're going to continue our conversation right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. 
I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are so pleased to continue our conversation with Eric Learned Miller, the chair of the computer science uh, faculty at the University of Massachusetts and a true expert in all the different faces, including facial recognition, that artificial intelligence uh, presents these days. Professor, I was saying during the break, you know, I, I'm really glad that we have uh, GPS uh, in our cars. I mean, I remember very easy for me to remember what it was like to have a big map, you know, spread out over my steering wheel with a flashlight trying to figure out where the heck I was going. And GPS now just says, you know, in a quarter mile turn right and it makes life a lot easier. At the same time, the whole notion of self-driving, I couldn't help but think about it when I was one of the last cars on Route 9 during the flooding in Williamsburg. The governor came to look at the Mill River and and see the source of the flooding uh, because of all these rains that we've had. I had to slow down when I saw this river on Route 9 in front of me, and then I had to sort of wind my way through potholes. And I'm not sure that if a self-driving machine could have done it and prevented an accident, because I was... Before I hit that, I was going at about 45 miles an hour, as one does approaching Williamsburg. Right. So uh, how do you distinguish that self-driving intelligence from GPS? Okay, wow. Well, you're you're opening up uh, (laughs) an awful lot of different issues. First, let me just say GPS is a satellite-based method. The thing that tells you exactly where you are has nothing to do with artificial intelligence. It's just... It's just bouncing, uh, you know, some stuff off 20 different satellites flying over your head. Uh, so that's, that's, that's really a separate thing. However, the thing that figures out w- uh, where you go uh, is looking at the road network and trying to find the shortest path. That's, that's, that shortest path algorithms are considered a very sort of crude form of AI. Uh, so that's that. And then you've raised what I think is a much deeper question, which is you're driving along and you've seen something that you probably ne- that you may have never seen before. Right. I mean, everybody working on autonomous driving knows you have to be able to recognize pedestrians and bicycles and other cars, rain, snow, you know, construction sites and many, many stop signs and so forth. You know, they've got an enormous list of things to recognize. But what happens when when you're seeing something you've never seen before, like a river coming across the road? And that can indeed cause problems for autonomous driving. That's one of the toughest parts uh, of that technology. And and then closely related to that is the idea of assessing your own confidence. So, and this is super relevant to the large language models like ChatGPT, where 
so so I want to give you an example to try to uh, illust illustrate what I'm talking about in, in the minute and a half a minute and a half that we have left. Yeah. Okay. Well, very quickly, if I give you a picture of somebody and it's super blurry so that you really can't see much about their face, you're going to say, I don't know who it is. But if you give that to the wrong kind of face recognition algorithm, it'll just say, well, that's Bob. What it really means is it looks more like Bob than anybody else, but it's not very good at assessing its own confidence. And these, many of these programs will tell you they're 95% confident or something like that. It's a completely meaningless number. Um, and I don't have time to go into the details, but let me just say one of the places where humans, um, I'll just add with respect to your water thing, you slow down because you don't understand what you're seeing, but imbuing that capability into AI is a very difficult thing. And it's a current big challenge for, that we have. Well, I can't tell you how much uh, I appreciate having you on and, and listening to you. It's something that we're all concerned about, we're all thinking about, and we usually don't have somebody with your level of knowledge and understanding and competencies um, for us to be, I guess I'll say it, confident about <laughs> what we are. So the, uh, the, obviously the faculty, the computer science department at the University of Massachusetts is in really good hands with you. Eric Learned Miller, and thank you so much for joining us today. For your listeners, thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, like Dr. Learned Miller, to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz You're Eisenberg on WHMP. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP news, information, and the arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg and Bill Newman is off. Um, hello, Dan Torres. Hey, Buzz. How goes it? It goes well. I am uh, really happy about our guest uh, this morning. She is a neighbor, um, an important member of our community, um, a good citizen, and also an incredibly creative and talented person. It is Jan Freeman. Hello, Jan. Hello, Buzz. Uh, so we are uh, talking about your uh, workshops. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been teaching people how to... Um, uh, use their creativity, how to write, how to express themselves. It is a 
from my perspective, a really daunting task that you undertake <laughs> year after year to teach people to get in touch with that portion of themselves to express things in a way that compels other people to understand their expression. How do you do that? I love to use visual art as a way to help people open up their emotions, their memories, um, and find language to express what they need to express. So I love going to museums uh, locally. I have poetry retreats at Mass MoCA and the Clark and now at Williams College Art Museum. And we visit the galleries and look at paintings, installations, photographs, sculptures, and I offer prompts that then help people to actually access memories that they may not have been able to um, recall and to articulate emotions through visual art. That's incredibly interesting to me, Jan Freeman. I mean... I thought that people who teach us how to write, I thought the premise is you have something to say, how do you say it? And you could offer help there. You're actually helping people figure out what it is that they have to offer, what it is they have to say. And in addition, how to articulate it. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, you do. I I like to use visual art as a portal um, to find ways to express ourselves and what we most need to think about and articulate. So I have read that uh, you're going to have an art poetry retreat from October 12th to October 15th in the heart of the Berkshires. Could you tell us about what that retreat is going to be? And, well, let's start here. How do people find (laughs) out more about it? Uh, People can uh, go to my website, which is janfreeman.net, and click on the workshop retreat link, and that will give everybody the details about the retreats. Um, The one coming up in October that you just mentioned, the 12th to the 15th, is a three-day retreat, and then I also have six-day retreats that happen. Uh, The six-day retreats are at Mass, are based at Mass MoCA. People have their own studio spaces um, and also have a bedroom in one of the four-bedroom apartments that MOCA provides. The uh, three-day retreats, people find their own accommodations or they commute if you're local. I'm sure Porches is happy about this. Uh, (laughs) Porches, yes. And then Hotel Downstreet offers a group rate, so it's less expensive for people who um, aren't able to book rooms at Porches or any of the other local hotels. So let's focus on the one October 12th through 15th. Is that all going to be at Mass MoCA? No, we'll be at Mass MoCA, um, and then we'll either be at the Williams College Art Museum or at the Clark. Yeah, and at the Clark, I know uh, I'm quite interested in, in going to the Clark because the Munch, there's a big exhibit of Munch work, the Scream uh, the person that uh, is famous for having uh, painted the Scream, you know, that... I don't know how to describe it. The face with the sort of... <laughs> it's iconic enough. With, People know about it. Okay. <laughs> with <laughs> the kind of ovals. Ovals. Uh, yes, right. Yes. The, I know that this weekend we're going to try to make our way 
to the Clark, but um, you have these wonderful resources here. I just want to circle back to what you were saying before. How is looking at art going to put me in touch with uh, those memories, those sentiments that uh, I may want to share with others by expressing them in writing? How, how is that going to put me in touch with myself? Well, I for during each day of the retreats that I have, um, I do exercises with the participants um, who can be completely new to poetry as well as people who have published a number of books. It's a completely mixed uh, audience. Uh, the participants have different levels of experience. And I do exercises to help people open up their awareness of their um, all all of their senses as well as opening up their memories so we do that first each day um, I have a different theme so the theme may be home or childhood family grief love um, place and and then I you know ask, everybody to write down, um, like for childhood, for instance, uh, what is a place that they associate with safety or with happiness or with fear in childhood. Everybody writes their responses. And then we go around and people share um, what they wrote down. That's a way to ease into each subject and then then we visit each work of art, and I offer a prompt. Um, for instance, at Mass Mocha, there's a wonderful um, sculpture installation that when you're walking towards the entrance of the museum, they're upside-down trees. Right. Right? That's right. very iconic for Mass Mocha. And I love using that for the theme of childhood, and the prompt one of the prompts is always, when I was a child, I lived upside down. And then everybody writes, uses that as an opening line, and then writes whatever comes into their mind. I, Dan, would say, what is it that these upside-down trees have in common with Congress? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm curious to know what you um, experience um, when somebody shares something very intimate in their lives and they're not sure they want to share it. Uh, how do you make people feel comfortable with it? And, and do people refuse to kind of share it in public, but still write it down and maybe share it with a smaller group? What happens in those situations? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, one of my goals always in the retreats and in all of my workshops, I, I also do weekly uh, poetry workshops on Zoom, um, Nothing, no one can be judgmental, number one. So I always try to create a very safe space. And when people are writing their drafts, it's optional whether they share the drafts or not. What's most important is that each person avoids, you know, tries to push past feeling self-conscious mm. and write whatever is in their mind. I it's very important for me to create a safe space. So, um, now how do you build that? I mean, is it, is it more about a person just feeling confident in their feelings and not feeling ashamed that somebody's going to judge them for it or 
Is there well, a way to build that? I mean, yeah, it seems a little hard to, it is, to do that. It's very hard. I personally also have a hard time sure. in those situations, but I, I number one, no answer, no, nothing that you write down is wrong. So nobody mm. can make mistakes. Right. Everything is about process, and there's no judgment. No, There's no criticism of the poet's work. Um, it's all drafts. It's... Um, anything that you write down mm. is completely okay. Mm. And do you think that those who have a lot of experience in, let's say, poetry, who have done multiple books, mm -hmm. gain as much uh, from individuals who have never done any poetry whatsoever? Can you talk about so that sort of uh, difference in skills level or expertise in the field? Oh, that's that's a really good point, and everybody learns from everyone else. Um, we all come from our unique life experiences, and someone who has very little experience um, in writing, uh, someone who has never published anything, may in their response to, well, a monk, for instance, one of uh, his paintings, have a have they write their unique. Uh, association with that work and their use of language, their their openness to expressing what is most important to them can then open up a very experienced poet's uh, response and their ability to write about things that they have never written about before. Jan Freeman... Uh as an author and a poet, uh, your your um, the imagery which you've created for me uh, during this conversation about looking at artwork and finding uh, places that resonate inside you that allow you to get in touch with something that you otherwise weren't in touch with. Uh, some of the great novelists, some of the I'm trying to think of an Alice Walker. Mm -hmm. Alice Walker wrote, I can't remember which book it was, it really resonated for me. She was talking about the difference between an African-American's hair, which she said is so natural and organic, it's thick, it's like wood. Mm -hmm. It has grain. Mm -hmm. And she compared it to a fair blonde head of hair, which she said is like corn silk. It's mm -hmm. natural in a, in a different kind of way. However she perceived that mm -hmm. and was able to write that, it really, I thought it was amazing because she was so observant that she could make those connections. How does looking at a piece of art put me in touch with myself so that I could see the better the way I see things and make it the kind of clarity that Alice Walker brought to those comparisons? Uh, yeah, wonderful to bring up Alice Walker and her use of similes and metaphors. And one of the things that I do with the exercises that everyone participates in, as well as the writing prompts, is to help people develop their ability to use metaphor and simile. Um, and as far as standing in front of a work of art, you know, most people typically stand in front of a work of art for at the very most seven seconds when we're going through museums or galleries. Is that true? That is, that's the statistic that I've yeah. read. And um, That seems a little long, actually. It's, it's, <laughs> it is, actually. Sometimes it's, you know, a half a second, so or a you're second. just kind of walking by, breezing by. Here we 
we stand or sit in front of each work of art for somewhere between five and eight minutes as the time that I... Are you reading the description and the history of it that's on a plaque on the wall? No. Mm. No, I'm interested in... I mean, yes, I share the title of the work of art and certainly the artist. Very important to um, acknowledge both. But I'm interested in how people experience the work of art as opposed to describe the surface image of the work of art. And that's something that's different in my approach to what's called ekphrastic poetry, writing in response to visual art or ekphrasis, uh, which comes from the Greek, is, is one art form responding to another art form. So ekphrastic poetry is one kind of writing. But instead of describing the image itself, say you look at the Homer uh, painting at the Clark that is this great huge uh, wave hitting uh, Prout's Rock, I'm interested in how each person experiences the water crashing down on the work of art rather than simply describing a wave is hitting the rock. Does right, but a piece of art, the medium is going to be uh, oil on canvas or it's going to be mm -hmm. a watercolor. Your medium in poetry is the use of words. Right. Language. Yes, certainly. Symbolic in a different kind of way. Uh, so how does that... How does that art form translate to the written word art form, the poetry art form. Yeah, good point. Of course, poetry is all about language, and but it's also about emotion. What's most important in poems, from my perspective, is expressing the poet's expression of their emotional truth, and not necessarily the literal truth. Mm. And one way to heighten that is to pay attention to people's use of verbs and nouns, which are, in my mind, the most important parts of speech in poems. And with our the exercises that I do with participants and with a wonderful game that we play each, each day um, during my retreats, and I do this also in all of my workshops, is to play the poetry game in which um, in response to a particular theme, whether it's grief or love or anger, everyone tosses in a verb and a noun that they connect with that particular emotion. And then everyone uses at least eight of those words to in a poem that they write. Mm. So it heightens each participant's awareness of verbs and nouns so that they can be much more specific in their own writing and they also expand their lexicon mm. when they write. Yeah. So um, it's very much about using language. Well, I just wanted to make a quick comment before we take a break, uh, Buzz. This is uh, Dan. Um, well, what you're talking about waves hitting rocks. Yes. What I think of, and, and let, me, let me see if this is what would happen mm -hmm. in in the retreat here is that I would come up with the idea of like boats. I think of like, when I think of a wave hitting rocks, I think of boats being nearby and something about arrival 
ship arriving and there's boats and there's rocks. I mean, that's just imagery and sounds. And then some the words that are coming to my mind is like arrival. It's new. It's it's or I could think about, you know, waves crashing into rocks is, uh, I guess, kind of energy being transferred to destruction, arrival, something mm -hmm. new. I don't know. Uh, is that is that what you go through the exercise or? Well, like, for instance, um, with the Winslow Homer um, painting at the Clark, um, the prompts that I use are the sea lives in my throat as a possible opening line mm. or my dread is the foam against the rock or the water becomes me mm. as a way to move into our emotional response mm. rather than simply describe what's in, what's front, in of front of us. What's in front of us. Oh, yeah. okay. Wow, the studio is now filled with Dan Torres' <laughs> sensibilities. Now, I got smarter just off that one. It's really great. We are talking to Jan Freeman. We're going to take a break, but before we do, remind people, if they wish to be a participant in your workshop, upcoming workshop, uh, or workshops, how do they do that? Where do they find uh, you? Everyone can go to my website, which is janfreeman.net, and click on the link for workshops and retreats. Jan Freeman, F-R-E-E-M-A-N. Jan is J-A-N, one word, dot net. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with poet Jan Freeman and educator Jan Freeman. She doesn't need improvements. She's much too nice to rearrange poetry in motion. Dancing close to me. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. <laughs> What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Our beloved local hero farms. Way too much rain, wiping out crops, wiping out entire farms. Our local hero farms matter too much to let them go down. We're all together on a rescue mission. Go to the Help Flooded Farms page at the CESA Local Hero website. Support a specific farm or donate to CESA's Emergency Farm Fund. Local Hero Farms. Think what life would be like without them. Go to the CESA website, buylocalfood.org, to the Help Flooded Farms page, and kick in what you can. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than 1,000 members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, Executive Director of the Northampton Community Music Center. 
Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Jan Freeman, the poet and the poet instructor um, who uh, offers workshops and retreats to help people get in touch with not only themselves, but their writing skills and be able to express themselves better in what they feel. I think, Jan, do I understand you have a pop-up workshop coming up? Yes, I'm, I've just recently decided to have a pop-up workshop, a two-hour workshop at the Clark um, during the Edvard Monk show. It will be August 21st, and there may be one on September 11th as well from 3 to 5 in the afternoon when it's not too crowded. Um, and we'll do writing in response to the extraordinary paintings by Monk that's on, that are on exhibit at the Clark. Yeah, it's, uh, he was so prolific, and it's, uh, it, it's a really important show, and I can't wait to, to see it. So you have, um, once again, your website is janfreemanoneword.net, and you'll have, has the, has the, can people register for the pop-up yet? Um, I'm going to be putting that up on my website um, by Friday. So. Okay. And so it gives people something to look forward to. Is right. it's going to be two hours, you said? A two-hour workshop, right. Yeah. It should be a lot of fun and expansive. I'm always interested in the workshops being an expansive experience for everybody that part- who participates. And um, do people over the course of a retreat, mm-hmm. which is more than just a short workshop, a three-day or five-day retreat, um, how much do they work with each other how much is it them just working alone? Oh, great question. Um, we, the workshops actually take place from 10 until 1 each day um, during the retreats. And then the, everybody has their afternoons off. When we're writing together um, during, during the morning workshops, People have the opportunity to share their drafts with each other, but if the material is too uncomfortable, as Dan was asking about, too personal, then, of course, there's no pressure. It's just all about process and each person um, expressing what they feel comfortable with. Um, As far as working together, sometimes in the afternoons, uh, poets will attend like the James Terrell or the Laurie Anderson exhibits that I sign up um, the group for. For those who don't know, James Terrell and his exhibits about light are just staggering. Yeah, they're wonderful. You need reservations in advance, and I make those in a, ahead of time, yeah. Well, I just wanted to add that well, the amazing part about this is that you're connecting art back to people's ability to write and kind of having that sort of intertwining um, relationship, that symbiotic relationship is really fascinating because it gets people to expand, like you were saying, the vocabulary, but also their understanding of relationships between words and images and how that can unleash 
sort of the potential. That's how I feel, at least in the studio buzz. I don't know yeah, about you. And, but I, and I guess, I guess uh, Dan and I are in the studio taking part in a Jan Freeman workshop right here. Well, <laughs> well I mean, our own the, understanding. The way it's hitting the rocks. I, th- I take it too literal, and so I need to expand so my it's, mind. So it's moving and, beyond the literal. I mean, I always you can describe the literal, what's yeah. right in front of you, but to move into really experiencing the work of art, that's mm. what I'm most um, interested in helping people to do. But it's also style. How do I express myself? And we have a real poet in Jan Freeman to help us figure out ways of doing it. But I always, I, uh, in the minute we have left, I just wanted to tell you, Jen, uh, uh, years ago, Ellen DeGeneres had finished her series and had done an HBO special, which I watched. It was a comedic special. And she said, I always wanted to write. I'm thinking, what should I do after my series is over? I should write something. Um, But what do I have to say? What am I an expert on that nobody else knows anything about that I could share with other people? And after I thought about it, Ellen DeGeneres said, she said, I came to understand that I'm an expert on procrastination. (laughs) I'm really good at that. And so I'm going to write about that. That was three years ago, and I haven't picked up the pen yet. So <laughs> I always thought. And that is, I want to end with that question, which is people, if you, you, by virtue of the stimuli that you're having them experience, um, get in touch with a part of themselves that they want to express, I still have to figure out how to express it poetically. There's all different styles of poetry. Are, do you help them find a mode of communication of their expressions? Well, I share work works um, by well-known poets in each of the morning workshops. So the poems that I distribute to everybody who's participating uh, reflect different styles of writing. So that's one thing that, um, that I offer to help people see, you know, do you want to write in a narrative linear way in which you're telling a story that that um, has a beginning, middle, and end? Or do you want to write in an associative way, which are just images, um, one after another? Um, I encourage people to really play and experiment. And again, there's no one right way of expressing ourselves. Well, we're going to have to leave it right there. Uh, Jan Freeman, you are a, uh, an incredible treasure to have in our community as a poet. Dan? Yeah, how, how does someone get in touch with you or find out more about this workshop? Uh, please go to my website, at, which is www.janfreeman.net, and click on the link for retreats and workshops. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks for all you do, Jan. Thank you so much, Buzz and Dan. Thank you. We'll be right back. Beyond the horizon Someone prayed for your soul My wretched heart is pounding You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Members of the major unions for educators in the Hampshire Regional and Williamsburg School Districts have voted to declare no confidence in Superintendent Diana Bonville. The Williamsburg Teachers Association, representing the teachers and educational support personnel at the Anti Dumphy School, also voted no confidence in Superintendent Bonville on June 30th. The union stated many reasons caused this vote, including failing to provide transparency, inadequate communication, forcing out veteran staff, and continuing to pursue a central office candidate whose values were not aligned with theirs. The decision will be discussed at a school committee meeting tomorrow night. 
A sexual abuse claim made against an athletics department member at Deerfield Academy is now settled. The victim alleged longtime Deerfield Academy athletics department employee Norman Therion sexually abused him in the athletic stockroom when he was eight or nine years old in 1991 or 1992. The victim was never a Deerfield Academy student, but he was the child of a school employee and was living on campus at the time. Jessica Day, Deerfield Academy spokesperson, tells the Gazette the school's trustees and victim's lawyer reached the settlement on the allegations, which came after the school engaged former Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, John M. Greeney, to lead an independent investigation of the three-decade-old alleged incident. Senator Joe Comerford shared Tuesday afternoon that MassDOT will be closing a section of Route 2 eastbound from just west of the Gill Montague Bridge to Adams Road due to slope erosion from Friday's storm. Partly to mostly sunny today, a high of 86 to 90. Evening temperatures, 70s and 80s under variable clouds. An overnight low tonight of 66 to 72. Heat advisory in effect for Thursday and Friday. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. Afternoon storms, a high of 88 to 92. And back in the 90s on Friday. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of LAN and WAN support. You should understand Windows Active Directory, networks, router, and firewall functions, and have experience with desktop support of Office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations. And yes, you'll receive great benefits. Please send your cover letter and resume to itjobs at springfieldrocks.com. Saga Communications of New England is an equal opportunity employer. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. I am, uh, look, I'm really gratified. One of my favorite organizations is Community Legal Aid, um, that uh, so many people who otherwise would not have the uh, financial capability of uh, having a key to the courthouse doors in this region uh, gain access thanks to the incredibly talented um, advocates that we have in community legal aid in, in the central and western Massachusetts. One of them is the um, managing attorney in our local 
office, uh, Jennifer Derringer. She's an extraordinary person, an extraordinary attorney, and uh, just a valuable member of our community. Good morning, Jen. Thanks. It's really nice to be here, Boz, and thanks for that really nice introduction. Well, you deserve it. And with us is Allison Vander Velden. You uh, are involved in a really important project. Um, why don't I start with you, uh, Jen? Why don't you tell us about this partnership, this medical legal partnership that is uh, so important to so many people in this region. Sure, happy to. So this is a medical legal partnership. It's a partnership with the Community Health Center of Franklin County, and we are so delighted to be involved with them. Um, they came to us some time ago to talk about establishing a medical legal partnership. We began in April. We've already had um, almost 30 referrals from them. And let me back up for a moment and explain what a medical legal partnership is. So we recognize that there are what we call social determinants of health. There are underlying social and legal issues that can really impair uh, folks' health. And Legal Aid is here to step in to work with the low-income community to uh, fix those legal issues, which in turn improves folks' health. And I just have to squeeze in, how is community legal aid funded? Uh, yes, thank you for asking. So we are primarily funded by the state legislature. They are extremely generous and supportive of, of us and always have been. Uh, we also get federal funding uh, through Legal Services Corporation, and we get a number of uh, grants, uh, foundations, support from um, incredibly important local organizations like the United Way of Hampshire and Franklin County. And I know only because years ago, when Sarah, Dr. Sandra, Sarah Kemble was the executive director, I was the attorney for the for the same organization you're now partnering with. It is a federal, what we call a 330 uh, grant recipient, right? Uh, Allison, do you know about that? Yeah, I do know about that. So I'm the CEO for the Community Health Center of Franklin County, which Sarah Kemble did um, found in the late 90s. And, um, and I was I was your lawyer back in the 17th century. I had no idea. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that. That is really exciting. Um, the health center has grown quite a bit since then. Um, but yeah, we are a um, federally qualified health center. So we, we do bill insurances um, as our primary source of revenue, but we are supplemented with a grant through um, the Health Resources, Health and Resources Services Administration um, through the feds. And, um, and that helps to bridge the gap between what our patients need and what their insurances and, actually And my last setup question is those 330 organizations, those community health centers, they're nationwide. There are yep. such centers, right? Yep. Yeah, we're all over the country, something around 1,500 uh, different federally qualified health centers in the, in the U.S., um, and we are one of them. There you go. So I just uh, wanted to add that, Jen, before you describe this collaboration. Terrific. Right. So what medical legal partnerships do is um, is create a direct link between the patients of the health center and legal aid. So we rely upon the um, community health workers uh, and the various medical professionals at the health center to uh, identify legal issues that may be impeding their patients' health. Um, what's so nice about this is the health center has such um, trusting long-term relationships with their patients that their patients may disclose issues to them that they might not disclose to anybody else. And they, in turn, then make a direct referral to community legal aid, and we step in and we uh, deal with whatever legal issue they're experiencing that's impeding their health. 
Can I get an example of such a legal issue? Absolutely. So I think of, uh, when I think of social determinants of health, I think that poverty is is one of the most major impediments to people's uh, physical health for all of the reasons. And the most basic and easy example of this is eviction. If folks are at risk of being evicted from their stable and secure housing, that's going to affect their health in all of the ways, particularly if they're low income because they are um, at least somewhat likely to become homeless if they're evicted from their apartments. And um, the, uh, that the, the health impediments of being homeless are are obvious and and extraordinary. So, Ali, what about the uh, privacy, the confidentiality relationship that a, pro, a medical provider shares with a patient? How do you get beyond that when you're going to disclose to a legal services? Yeah. Uh, person that this person's in need of eviction services. Yeah, well, the key is that relationship with the medical provider team and the patient. Um, community health centers have always, and it's more and more, um, you know, as the years go on, but we have been involved in connecting patients to all kinds of resources because we are aware of these social determinants of health. You can't be healthy. We can't help your diabetes if you, you know, are engaged in a you know, all-encompassing legal dispute or, um, or you don't have access to something else that you need. So we have been in the business of connecting patients to resources for a long time. And the key there is, you know, that the patient wants to be connected. Um, so with this partnership, we do have an agreement um, with CLA about, um, you know, basically what the rules are around confidentiality um, and with our partnership so that it can be respected and that patient rights are maintained. Um, and nobody will be referred if they if they do not want to be. So, Jen Derringer, how do you you get a, how do you get the referral from the health center or from the patient? So, from the health center, the community health workers are the folks that make that connection for us, and that's been terrific. Um, we work very closely with them. They'll send over a, a referral form. Our uh, one of our amazing paralegals, uh, Ashley McGill, will be in touch with the patient determine what the legal issue is. If it's something that we can help with, she and I will talk and I'll refer it to an attorney for representation or advice or information, whatever the situation calls for. So what's nice about it is it really is a direct link between the patient and community legal aid and it really streamlines the intake process, which um, can sometimes be cumbersome for folks. How does it get determined what kinds of legal issues you may be able to help somebody with? So that's a, that is one of the million-dollar questions at Legal Aid. We are um, constantly thinking about what legal issues our clients need the most help with and what, what are the most critical to their safety, security, um, and, and health. Um, the vast majority of cases that we see come in that people need help with is in the housing arena, primarily eviction defense, but also help accessing shelter if they're homeless, um, help deny, uh, help appealing denials of public and subsidized housing, which is incredibly important for low-income folks, um, and housing discrimination. That's an area that we have grown tremendously over the past couple of years, and we now are doing housing discrimination work in all five of the counties that we cover, uh, which is new and very exciting. Um, other areas that are critical uh, to the folks that we help 
are domestic violence and family law, uh, helping folks obtain and um, keep benefits, all the benefits you can imagine. Like, so, for example, nutrition must be part of the health you know, yeah. equation, right? And so SNAP benefits, what are called SNAP benefits, Allison, um, you might, uh, a patient might disclose that they can't access good nutrition. Right, yeah, and, and our team screens all of our patients for a variety of social determinants of health. Um, so they're screened for anything from housing to um, food insecurity to uh, violence at home, different kinds. We, we ask a lot of questions because we know that these things impact your health and that people do often need support. Um, resolving it that they may not have the connections to themselves, and so we can facilitate that connection. Um, yeah, and, and SNAP food benefits is, is a big one, um, especially currently with the price of food. It must be. Well, actually, it's an assumption that I'm making. I'm assuming that if I'm a patient and I go to the Community Health Center of Franklin County and I am getting treatment for whatever that health mm -hmm. issue is, and I learn that I'm a victim of domestic violence and you can connect me with somebody yeah. who can help me. It must be really uplifting and a real relief to know that legal services is available for yeah. such a patient. Right? Yeah, I, I think it um, it can have a real impact. You know, uh, primary care providers are, are trusted um, by their patients and they've earned that trust. And, um, and they are also constantly on the lookout for resources that will help their patients to just thrive and be healthy and happy. That's the whole goal of, of healthcare. Um, the other thing is that sometimes people don't want to talk about those social determinants in their, in their appointments. They're here, they have a rash, they have a pain, their knee hurts, whatever it is. You know, they, maybe they don't want to talk about it, but we are expert in building those relationships, getting that comfort level so that we can, when they're ready, bridge to the next step, um, you know, from a healthcare perspective. Uh, community Legal Aid uh, Managing Attorney Jen Derringer, is there a different approach to your communications with someone who directly asked for community legal aid and applied for your services, as opposed to somebody who was referred to you by uh, a community health center? That's a great question, Buzz. Um, so our traditional way that people access our services is to either call or to apply online at communitylegal.org. Um, but this is, a, this is these medical legal partnerships, and we now have many across all five of our counties, are a way to streamline that intake process a little bit. So I think what it does is it gets folks to us more quickly, and it also helps us connect with folks who might not otherwise know about our services or seek them out. Um, one thing that I really value about our relationship with the health center is that um, they're based in Franklin County. There's an office in Greenfield and in Orange. And traditionally, it can be harder to access and to reach folks in rural communities for legal aid. And so this provides, um, it deepens the connections that we have with the folks in these rural communities. Um, we are going to take a break, but before we take a break, I just want to say that um, as someone who's now lived in my community, uh, lived, worked here in Franklin and Hampshire County for 52 years or something, um, my community is wonderful because it's so diverse, and some of the people who live here who make it such a wonderful community don't have the capacity to. They, don't, they can't afford legal services to take care of basic needs or medical services. 
And um, to me, uh, you guys are heroes. We talk about local heroes in the arena of providing food, but you guys truly are heroes for helping my neighbors find their way to the kind of lifestyle we all deserve. We're going to be back with Jen Derringer and with Allison Vander Velder Venden Velden. Got it. <laughs> Vander Velden. Right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Do you have a garden? Do you love fresh vegetables? I bet you'll love Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Where vegetables aren't a token afterthought, they're the reason you're there. Seven salads, nine vegetarian entrees, plus soups and the vegetable risotto cakes. A lot of the vegetables at Paul and Elizabeth's arrive from local farms. When vegetables arrive in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen, they take center stage. Try the kale and sea vegetable salad. Try the tempura vegetable plate with sesame ginger dipping sauce. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back talking about a collaboration uh, for justice and health between the Community Health Center of Franklin County and Community Legal Aid uh, for Central and Western Massachusetts. And I guess I want to start with you, uh, Executive Director Allison Vandervelden. I got it right that time. <laughs> How do people get in touch with Community uh, Health Center of Franklin County? And how do people find out if they qualify? Yeah, so um, the website's a great place to start. There's a ton of information there at chcfc.org. Let's do that slower. CHC for Community Health Center, FC, Franklin County, dot O-R-G, chcfc.org. Um, and you could also give a call to the office. It's 413-325-8500. 325-8500. And um, what are the eligibility criteria mm-hmm. for being able to use the services? Yep. This service is available. Uh, these connections can be made for patients of our primary care um, 
department, um, any patient of the health center um, who, who sees uh, a health center provider for regular care um, can be eligible and can be referred. Um, now the uh, CLA may have more... Um, CLA, Community Legal community Aid. Community Legal Aid may have more um, information about specifically which services they can provide. But if I have my own health insurance, I could still use Anybody, your... that's a great question. It's one of my favorite questions. A lot of people think community health centers are only for low-income people or only for people with Medicaid, but actually we see everybody. Um, and we love to see everybody because we are your community's health center. Um, and, you know, I remember it was yeah. a wonderful blend of people who were low income and people who just trusted yeah. the medical services that were being provided. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, we we are here to serve everybody. There's a lot of reasons why you may choose a community health center. I should know the answer to this. Are there still dental services provided? Yep, we have a, a dental department. We have a, a board-certified oral surgeon. Um, dental services are in very, very high demand right now, um, so we aren't really taking new patients for new to establish um, regular care, but we do have uh, emergency openings. And do you have a wait list? We do, and I can't tell you how long it is. I don't have that off the top of my head. That's okay. For You're... dental, it's long. For medical, uh, it is not. Okay. It's really imp it's important to know the Community Health Center of Franklin County. And how about uh, community legal aid? How do people get in touch with community legal aid? Yeah, sure. Thanks for asking. So we uh, there are two ways that folks can apply for services from CLA. Uh, the first is to call uh, our 1-800 number which I do not have. Oh, I do. It is 855-252-5342. Uh, and if folks have access to the internet, the easiest way to apply is just to go to our website, which is communitylegal.org, and uh, fill out an online application. I, I just want to point out, having been involved in both of these uh, extraordinary, necessary organizations that um, it's a great place for your donative inclinations, both Community Legal Aid and uh, the Community Health Center of Franklin County. Um, they do rely, they, they are grant recipients, but they also uh, rely on individuals' generosity in order to help uh, keep the community that we uh, all live in uh, healthy and vibrant um, housed, fed, free of violence. There are so many ways that both of these organizations are just so important. Um, I'll give you the final word, Allison. This, this collaboration, um, what does it mean to people who come to the health center and have problems that might otherwise be unsolvable? Yeah, coming in and, and having a conversation with a trusted provider that leads to a solution can be just life altering, um, can help people see the light at the end of a tunnel. Oftentimes it can help, you know, just give hope where there maybe wasn't any before, depending on the issue they've been dealing with. And, um, we do have a lot of resources in our community and, um, the community health center, Franklin County, we're proud to be able to be a connector, not just for the things we provide directly, but to all of these resources. And once again, that's C D C F. C C H C F C there we dot go. O R G H C Community <laughs> Health Center, Franklin County dot org.
Uh, yeah, so that's yeah. why in fourth grade I wasn't, I didn't make it as a squirrel. I was kept in the blue jays because I got confused with my letters. I think a Google search will bring it up one way or another. A community yeah. in Franklin <laughs> County. And one more time, Jen Derringer, how do people get in touch with you? Sure. So our website is communitylegal.org, and our 1 800 number is 855 252 5342. There are real heroes here in the studio. And thank you for all that you do. Thank you for joining us today. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. Remember, we don't just talk the talk. We all should try to walk the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the News will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, 